to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken and Brian, a special guest star. Recorded May 10th, 2012. So welcome back, Brian. It's good to be here. And you're joining us for episode 82, uh, our 28th episode of the Star Trek 90s series we're doing. Mm-hmm. And ironically enough, last time you were on, we did a flashback episode with uh, the whole birth and of David and relationship with Carol Marcus and Kirk. So it's kind of fitting that in this issue, it's kind of a flashback episode, too. It is replete with flashbacks. Yeah, it's really nice to be asked. It's, it's, it's of course, nice to be asked to do the show, but it's really nice to be asked back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, it's nice to know that somebody's listening. Exactly. (laughs) And that bribe you slipped us was okay, too. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. I didn't get that. Okay, shall we go on? (laughs) Yes. So uh, today we're going to do the graphic novel Debt of Honor. This came out in beginning of 1992 or end of 1991. I don't remember which one it was. It originally came out as a hardcover, and then it also was re-released as a paperback. And it is a huge comic. So we are going to break it up a little bit and do the first third, and then we'll talk about it. The second, third, talk about it, and then the third part and talk about the whole story. So that way you, the listener, will will kind of get the feeling that it's a... Uh, three-parter versus just one incredibly long story. <laughs> incredibly long 92-page story. It's a graphic novel. Exactly. You know, usually 92 pages doesn't seem that long, but this one is a very dense story. Yep. Yep. It's good. It's dense. A lot of stuff going on. And so uh, we'll be bouncing between myself, Brian, and, and Ken with the synopsis, so hopefully that won't be too jarring. And with that, I guess I'll go ahead and get us started. The writer of this was Christopher Claremont. He's known for X-Men series for Marvel. Artist is Adam Hughes and Carl Story. Ironically enough, Carl Story was known for uh, his Aliens comic books. Colorist Tom McCraw and uh, letterer Robert Pinaha. So the story starts off on the Genesis planet as it's ripping itself apart. We see Kirk lying near a precipice with his leg jutting over the ledge. The Klingon Captain Kirk is dangling above the abyss, holding on to Kirk's leg. Uh, Kirk yells at the top of his lungs, Klingon bastard! And slams his boot into the Klingon's face. As he lifts his boot up to make another strike, Kirk's face transforms into David. And David is actually speaking, and he says that he's sorry for what happened and that the whole Genesis planet was his fault. Kirk again yells, I have! And he slams his boot down on on David's face. Uh, Again, as he lifts up his boot, the shape changes, and now it's the form of Khan. And Khan is gloating about Kirk's loss and how the only reason why Kirk is still alive is due to the blood and the lives of those he loves. And then Kirk continues his uh, Star Trek Three dialogue with, Had enough? And the boot comes down again. 
now the scene suddenly changes, and we're now seeing the Enterprise in her death throes. And she's plummeting down into the atmosphere of the Genesis planet, and Kirk is tumbling along with her. And it finishes the line, of you! Which is a good line. It's weird that they broke it up like that. But anyways, Kirk finishes his little line, and he tumbles into the uh, atmosphere in a ball of fire. And while doing so, there's uh, some thought balloons or dialogue that uh, he did what he had to do. He sacrificed the ship to prevent the Klingons from taking over. He always had to find a way to win. He always had to find a way to cheat death. It now flashes to a beautiful sunrise on the calm waters of the Pacific Ocean. Kirk sits on the side of a large yacht bobbing in the water. He is lost in his thoughts looking over as the sun peeks over the side of the world. Just then there's a huge crash and a wave of water splashes over him, snapping him out of his revelry. He jokingly chastises Gracie for her wet greeting. Just then, Dr. Gillian Taylor emerges from the galley, carrying a tray of coffee and mugs. She jokingly tells Kirk that it's his time to start breakfast. She dons on her scuba gear and hops into the water. As Kirk watches her go under to check on the very pregnant Gracie, the radio crackles with somebody looking for Kirk and asking for permission to rendezvous. Kirk authorizes the request and closes the connection. Dr. Taylor soon returns from her swim. She and Kirk talk about his reoccurring dream, and she suggests that he should speak to McCoy. She tells him that it is only natural to feel for his losses, and that she understands since she has recently lost her whole life and her whole world when she came up to the 23rd century to assist in the next generation of these whales. They both have done what they had to do for the greater good. And then she reminds him of the old adage Spock has mentioned a time or two. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Cut to a pre-refit Constitution class ship. First Officer Chenoweth is walking through the USS Farragut to engineering, followed by a mysterious cloaked figure. We are privy to the captain's log, being recorded by Chenoweth because 24 hours ago the ship was attacked. The captain and a third of the crew were killed. They have no idea who or what attacked them or why crew members are dead, although there is the disruption of blood chemistry that they're trying to work on. They don't want to send a subspace call for help because of their proximity to the Romulan neutral zone. Acting Captain Chenoweth asks for a status report of young Lieutenant Kirk. He's working as fast as he can to repair the navigational sensors, but it's bad. Chenoweth introduces him to the cloaked figure, who turns out to be a Vulcan woman named Tassel. She's a passenger on her way to work on outposts under construction in the neutral zone, and her crew, like Kirk's, was wiped out, and she's offering to help. Kirk protests, but Chenoweth snaps at him that they need the sensors, so suck it up and work with her. Kirk is frustrated with the slow going of things to the point of throwing tools around, and Tassel offers to help. They engage in a typical Vulcan took the expression literally dialogue about Kirk thinking Vulcans don't like to get their hands dirty. She makes a crack about his hygiene and haggard look. Can you feel the sexual tension yet? They continue to banter about some paper they requisitioned by a Starfleet officer named Spock, who Jim hopes to meet someday. Tassel asks Jim how he would feel 
if the situation were reversed and they came on a Romulan vessel crippled on their side of the neutral zone. He claims he'd rescue any ship in peril, even if it were an enemy, in the hope that it might build trust between the species. Kirk says he's worried because he screwed up by hesitating to fire during the attack. He did that a lot on the Farragut. And that's why the ship is crippled. She says, we all make mistakes, but he says, people died. There's an explosion. A projectile comes through the hull, and a sealant forms around the breach, preventing a loss of pressure. And I know this because they say so. The front of the missile opens like a flower to reveal a little alien. And by alien, I mean, in space, no one can hear you scream, alien, who Kirk attacks with a pipe, and the alien sprays Kirk with goo. He evades it. The stun setting won't touch it. Only a long, full phaser blast can kill it. There are more in the pod. They run. More missiles hit the ship. It's a full attack. A woman Kirk knows, named Diane Morewood, is cocooned in the goo, along with the rest of her team. An announcement comes on telling them to run to the saucer section, which is alien-free, so they can jettison the lower hull. Artificial gravity gets knocked out, and to sell and Kirk float their way all the while making astute and enlightening observations about the creatures until they are told the explosives to separate the saucer are damaged and have to be detonated manually from below. Kirk goes with a line about putting on the uniform means risk. But Tassel follows him, and they engage in adorable, gravity-free chatter during the remarkably tense process of manually setting off the charges. Tassel is attacked by a large alien. Kirk saves her, but is injured, and together they manage to push the final button and the saucer is set free. As she holds a wounded but increasingly charming Kirk, Tassel assumes that they'll both die, but Kirk suggests they try to get to an escape pod. But Kirk is too injured to go. But with a burst of uncontrollable and very confusing passion, Tassel manages to fight their way to the pod, all the while musing about the odd and not-so-logical feelings that she's having as she pledges not to let Kirk die. They make it out in the nick of time, and Tassel pilots the craft to one of those unmanned stations the Federation is building near the neutral zone. Just the two of them waiting for rescue. What will they do to pass the time? But wait, a Romulan bird of prey approaches, so she places Jim into a stasis tube to keep him alive, while conveniently hiding his life signs from sensors. And she takes off in the pod, sacrificing herself, but not before a passionate kiss and a promise to keep him alive, and the words, Live long and prosper, Jim Kirk, and remember. Cut to some time later. Kirk is on the mend at Starfleet Command, walking around with a cane. Yes, a cane. Musing about Tassel and how she's a part of him, and how he wants to learn more about Vulcans, so he's reading papers by Amanda Grayson. He's called to Starfleet Command, wondering if he'll be thrown out of Starfleet, but in fact, he's commended for saving the ship. Jim says he messed up. The Admiral says, nobody's perfect, and you saved the ship. The Romulans deny having to sell, and they found the pod and some evidence of remains, so the report is that she's probably dead. Oh, and by the way, Nobody else saw the creatures. So, Jim, okay, we'll just keep clear of the areas. 
and we won't really talk too much about the creatures. Jim stares out at the ocean and sums it up for us. That Tassel's death seems fishy, and that he is going to get to the bottom of the origin and intent of the creatures, which he now unfortunately refers to as critters. So, pretty interesting first half, or first third. Not an easy segue between those two sections, I thought. It was, at this point, you can't really tell how they're related. No, it's, it's a mystery. <laughs> and I'm glad that they had a pretty thrill-packed grabber kind of story, not too far into the book. And, and I love them going back to the Farragut days. Mm-hmm. Right, and this is obviously uh, the events that are referred to in the episode The Obsession, right? Where uh, the Farragut was attacked by the vampire cloud? I don't think they're the events that are referred to there. I think that's a separate incident. Um, you think so? Because the in The Obsession, he was beating himself up because he didn't fire the phasers in time. And, and I assume that that's what they're talking about here. Well, that's why I made the side comment that this seems to happen to Kirk a lot, the firing too late, because that that's in a into into some cloud, and it has and there's a whole thing about the, um, you know the the the, the captain's son is on the Enterprise at that point, and uh, the very the very captain that he was serving under, and I I don't think this is what because because they would have to link this to the cloud in Obsession, and they never really do. Well. But the cloud part happened right before this story. So in Obsession, they never talk about the critters, but okay. there's nothing that says the critters didn't happen right after the vampire cloud attack. Well, that's helpful because I'll tell you, I, I didn't get it. I'm wondering, as I'm reading this, they never really explain what happened, and, and there is that strange reference to something's wrong with their blood chemistry. So you're absolutely right. I completely Missed that. Right, and he does say that Captain Garavik just died, and Garavik is the son that's in Obsession, right? Yes, he, that's yeah. the son of the captain, yeah. Right, so, and as we'll see later, it's um, it's when big events happen in the universe as to when we get some of these flashbacks. So I, I'm guessing they're assuming the vampire cloud was a, was a big galactic event. Yeah, they they measure it to a major celestial event or something like that. Yeah, which I never Wait, liked I, vampire clouds, so I, I don't buy that. But okay, the, a vampire cloud was a, a big galactic event. Uh, <laughs> that's what they're saying here, man. I don't get it. I don't, I don't get that. <laughs> I, I, it's great to have you brought up all these points, and I didn't get the, those uh, connections, all of them, to the vampire cloud thing. But that I didn't take that as a vamp, as a, a galactic event. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, like I said, I noticed that he mentions that he f- hesitates to fire, and that's the whole plot point yep. of Obsession. And I was like, why are they bringing that up again? It didn't occur to me that the, that the cloud was what devastated the ship to begin with, and now we're going to see its destruction. Right. Yep. I'm pretty sure that's what they're going for. Hmm. Okay, I think you're absolutely right. Kudos. Ah, Cool. <laughs> and this is this is just the first of many just random Star Trek the original series uh, tie ins that will be in this story. Mm-hmm. Tie ins, references, throwaways everywhere. Right. Uh, it's another kind of encyclopedic 
revisiting of so many elements of Star Trek over the years. It's almost like Peter David wrote it. Mm, you see, I feel like Peter David is much more um, casual, organic with his references, and they kind of just really work. Whereas I felt like throughout this whole book, the writer was really trying hard to make these references, and they just didn't feel like they were natural. They almost felt like intrusions sometimes. I see what he was trying to do. I, it was like he got to write a Star Trek story, and he wanted to to pull it all together. And so every time you turn a corner, there's another person that you see that you know is some character that made it onto a single episode and was referenced once or twice. And you know what I mean? It, it just didn't uh, it didn't yeah. flow organic. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100. percent I felt the same way. I, I I felt that it seems forced where Peter David usually is pretty seamless and he just works it into the story right and we'll get more of that much later when when there's a whole page of just here's a whole roster of random people you don't know who they are yeah that uh, that, that's sort of the ultimate expression (laughs) it's like oh i didn't get these people in yet here let's put them here (laughs) yeah we'll get to that so what do you guys think about the artwork overall so far i think it's pretty good i like it. it it is pretty good. It's a certain style. It's kind of stylized. I, I thought in this more than in some other comics, I could really see both the sketch and the inker. You know what I mean? Like you could kind of see the sketch below the ink. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't either. Okay. I You know, I'm sure you guys know that first somebody comes through and sketches the sure. the comics with pencil. Right. And the inker comes along and adds dimensions and makes it much sharper and darker with an ink, you know, with, with black ink. And then they color it. Right. And in, in, the, in this particular style, I feel like I can sort of see underneath the ink to the sketcher's work, his original work. I don't know. I thought I could see it throughout the book. Cool. I, I didn't get that feeling. Um in fact, I thought it was kind of odd that a lot of times the coloring seemed to be more of the old style, you know, pointillism type shading versus what you get in in modern comic books. Mm. Oh, you have to explain that 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 word. Did you say uh, pointillism? Yeah, like on page twelve when it shows to sell in shadow and it's it's you know her face, but then the shadow part is just a bunch of little black dots kind of all put together to oh. make it look like it was a shadow instead of truly just shading the whole thing a different shade. I mean, that's how they used to have to color the comic books back in the day because there was they only had the, you know, four colors and based on the number of dots they threw at the at the the picture was what color it turned out to be. But you know, by that I, time they that that shouldn't what, have been the case. I think you're right because if you, you know, scroll up to the 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 framing story, it's not as much, it's a much more crisp the colors they're clearly trying to show us a different palette for each of the stories, you know? Right. But even there with the, um, I don't know what page it is on the DVD, but like when it shows Jillian kind of looking up on page nine, I mean, it's still, it's, it's there too. Every time they do shadow on the face, it's the tiny little dots versus just shading it a different color. Right. Which at times just seemed weird to me. It, it really felt like I was reading a comic from the 70s or 60s. We might be talking about the same thing, but in different ways. You know, the same so you, phenomenon. You were, you were thinking that was the, the penciler. Yeah. Mm. I, 
Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Seems a little uniform for the penciler. Yeah. I think one thing about the comic in general is I think they were able to take more time and spend more money on the graphic novel than they would on most issues. Yeah, right. I I think it's a much more polished product. uh, That's true. In a lot of ways compared to a normal kind of issue where they're probably under a normal deadline where they got to get it out the door kind of quick. I think they spent more time on this. Like like uh, most graphic novels, I guess. Right. That's probably true. Um, I wish they would have spent a little more time making the balloons a little easier to follow. (laughs) Especially when they're zigzagging. What was that? I'm sorry. I talked over you. Especially when they're zigzagging. So they'll have a stack of balloons on top of each other, and you really got to see where the lines are going to people's mouths to figure out who's talking. And not only that, but you got to figure out which which one you're supposed to read first. Yeah, I have that problem, too. Yeah, a lot of times it didn't follow the normal comic book reading order logic. Um, I, I just noticed that that this was a very wordy comic in general. I mean, I can remember when you guys reviewed Spock Reflections, and you said were like, "Gee, there wasn't very. This was mostly just images. There wasn't a lot of words in it." Um, this is the other extreme where I felt like the word balloons were just like so packed in there and there was so much to read. I turned the page and I, and I would have this sort of like visceral reaction like, oh, you know, I love to read. But when you're reading a comic book and, and we've got these little small letters, I really just felt like it was a whole lot of exposition that was being put in there that, um, you know, maybe a narrator would normally do it. or, or uh, But every page essentially seemed to be just really full of words. Right. Yep. Right. And yeah. you got a little break with the captain's log, but other than that, you're right. Uh, yeah. All exposition. Yeah, and really, captain's log is where you should do that. Just yeah. like in the TV show, the captain's log is really your narrator, and then yep. the story right. itself should be moving pretty fast. Right. Uh, I agree. Um, what did you think about what I mean... You've mentioned this phenomenon before, but do you think that the Jillian character was a situation where they did not have rights to the image of the actress? Because I didn't get Seventh Heaven Woman at all in this. <laughs> at times, I thought she looked uh, spot on. Other times, I thought time, she looked odd. I agree with that. In many cases, uh, not the Seventh Heaven Woman, but there are some of these that look a lot like her. Mm. But I will say one thing. Obviously, I don't think her shape was ever that good. <laughs> that actress, but oh, maybe when she was eighteen or nineteen or twenty. But yeah, they definitely made a point of that. I don't think Kirk looked that good in Star Trek Four either, or <laughs> maybe even in the uh, original series. <laughs> she didn't look that good, but right. So, what, speaking of her in the bathing suit, what, what did you think of the twenty-third uh, century bathing suit that she's wearing? Hamana, hamana. Um, I yeah. Like did it not look weird with the long sleeves and the collar? Right. How many bathing well, suits have a the, collar? The collar was weird, but that's really a diving outfit. But it doesn't have legs. Diving. You, usually, diving <laughs> outfits would still have the the legs. Well, not if you want to be sexy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so that, that's what the, that's one thing I thought was kind of cool about this because this is some fancy Dan, uh, you know, twenty third century outfit. Because I don't know if you guys guys ever gone diving, but normal dive suits whether they're the old-fashioned rubber or the neoprene or whatever, they're not comfortable. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. really want to get out of them when you're out <laughs> of the water. But she's, like, lounging around in the outfit, which is really cool, and then, then she just goes diving with the same outfit. 
And I and I think that's I, I, when I was diving a long time ago. I wish I had that. This is the 23rd century, Ken. I know. They've Isn't got that, that cool? all worked out. And not only that, <laughs> it's it's her uh, breathing apparatus on her back is like almost nothing. Yeah, it looked like it was just on her face. I didn't notice that there was actually something on her back. Yeah, she's got a backpack, a little backpack. Now later, yeah. eventually we'll see Kirk diving also at the very end. Now he's got a cool little uh, like James Bond kind of thing that just goes in his, you know, coming out of his mouth with kind of like two tubes coming out of the side and that's it. Right. Right, like but, Star Wars 1, right? Oh, right. Exactly. Same kind of thing. Although they got that from James Bond originally. But yeah, I think she stays down longer, so she's got a little bit of a backpack, but it's almost nothing to it. Yeah. I I didn't even notice it. Yeah, I didn't notice the backpack until you mentioned it. Yeah. Did y'all well, notice somebody missing from that beginning opening scene? George? Yeah. <laughs> Costanza? So, what's that? Nothing. Go ahead. Hold I on, said no. Costanza. Yeah, so, yeah, where's George? It's like there's Gracie and there's like these little dolphins. So maybe she replaced George with uh, these three or four dolphins. Doesn't he show up at the end? No, but that's that might spoil something later. I, I don't think I saw him. Well, we'll have to wait till we get there. Yeah, we'll let's do that. To the end. I'm there's not going to scroll. A lot of whales at the end. All right, my last comment on this section was to sell eating the fruit on page fourteen. Did y'all think that was an odd shot? Did you know that she was eating by that point? No. <laughs> You're talking about when, she, when, when Kirk has got his back to the bulkhead and she's kneeling? Uh, well, the next page. That's page... Wait, hold on. 12, 13, um, 14. I don't know what page it is on the, oh, on yeah. the DVD. But on page 13, it shows her kneeling and he... It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, page 14. It's page 14. Page 14 is just this random picture of her with this purple fruit in her mouth. <laughs> yeah, or that, or that, or it's a, it's a purple popsicle. I don't know. Yeah, that's what it looks like, a popsicle. That's what I was thinking. But I didn't catch that she was eating on the first page. I thought they were still working on the engines, and then I flipped the page, and she's shoving this purple <laughs> thing in her mouth all seductive-like, and I'm well, like, seductive-like. I'm, I'm getting mixed messages here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she, a minute ago, she was talking about getting her hands dirty working on the engines, and now she's shoving stuff in her mouth. Well, that's kind of what I was getting at when I was saying they, you know, they try to build the sexual tension between the two of them. It's a little on the nose. I guess that would be a good example of it. <laughs> yeah, it just it was a weird shot. It's a weird shot, but you actually think they might have done that to kind of do a subliminal thing? Yep. Because you're probably really looking at Kirk's head in that particular shot, you know, his profile or whatever. And she's like right there. It's like, ooh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's what they're trying to get at. They're trying yeah. to make it all, you there know, you seductive-y. It's, it's kind of like that one issue where the uh, next-gen crew are dressed as Klingons. Hmm. Oh yeah, Brian hasn't listened to that episode, but it it's it Ken has some interesting comments about that. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. But anyways, and here's my little fanboy comment about that shot. In addition to it looking very seductive, she's touching her food, which to Paul in Enterprise makes a big deal that Vulcans don't actually touch their food. Okay, I don't remember that, but cool, cool. Well, she yeah. is only half Vulcan. Well, we don't know that yet, Ken. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> Sorry. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Anybody else have any other comments about this section? Um, a couple. Um, first of all, I want to know what you guys thought about the um, the recreation of the Star Trek three scene and the visions that he's supposedly having in that moment, or maybe he's remembering it this way. I don't know. I kind of liked it. I kind of liked the whole sort of stylized way they did that. I liked it when I was reading it, but then when I had to write the synopsis, it felt weird that I'm telling the audience that he's kicking his son in the face. Because <laughs> it doesn't actually show the boot on his face, but it does show it coming down. And it's just odd thinking that Kirk is dreaming that he's really kicking his son in the face. Okay, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be really nitpicky now. I noticed that I and I didn't go back and look, so maybe I'm wrong. But you know, they broke it up as Klingon bastard. I have had enough of you. And I think the cadence in the actual thing, I can't believe I'm saying this, is I have had enough of you. (laughs) And you got to do that you a long time. Mm -hmm. Right. I think you're right. I also, you know, I got to say, when I first saw the very first image, not, you know, on the splash page, if you will, and I saw him hanging off the end and I'm about to kick him, it just reminded me of, of... and I really do like Star Trek Three. I really do. But that scene where the piece falls down, resulting in in him hanging there, I always think that looks so fake. So fake. Because yeah. it just kind of works its way down, really, sort of gently. You know what I mean? When the when the rock falls off. Right. So, I don't know. I just seemed weird to start this whole book in that particular moment. Wow. And but then the, also when Reverend Jim is kind of. <laughs> kind of losing his balance, and it's like, oh, oh, oh that, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be nitpicky, uh, he does not look like Reverend Jim here in this uh, this panel. <laughs> no. Yeah. Maybe he wanted too much money. But that first panel where everything's on fire and stuff, mm-hmm. I agree with you. I love where they started that. I think the the Star Trek movies were great up until the third one, but I was saying, you know, why didn't Kirk kick somebody's ass? I mean, the yeah. whole thing with Khan in the second one, great movie and everything, but they never, I mean, they never come face to face. Not not once. View screen. So I was like, come on, come on. And this one finally had a good fight scene with Kirk. I like that. Absolutely, I I would agree with that. That was sort of like, that was a a good moment dramatically in the in the whole series. And I've always been a big fan of the overacting, uh, I'm so tired of you, uh, or have had enough of you. Line. So I like that they, they did that here. Yeah. I do think that Star Trek Three is the best acting by William Shatner <laughs> of the series. I do, because he was, he was directed well. I, I just thought that he did a good job. He was understated in most of it. Yeah, yeah. And the thing that you made me think of about Star Trek Two that I've always been, been um, every time I've seen it, which is a lot, uh, when... At the very end, when the Enterprise escapes just before the Genesis device explodes, are we not missing a reaction shot by Khan being able to see that he got away and have it hit him, and then the Genesis device should go off? Am I the only one that notices that? To show him get who get away. So you know, it's it's the end, and and Khan is you know, no, you can't get away, and all you know in that scene, and then they do get away, but they don't show Khan. Witnessing it. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. That, that, that's a good point. Yeah. To show that he knew that he failed ultimately. Exactly. The Kirk won. Icing on the cake. 
Right. Um, one more thing I noticed in this section, and that is, this is just a stupid thing, but in the very, very beginning of the Farragut scenes, when Tassel is following Chenoweth through the hallways, she looks like a midget. They're trying to show depth perception, I think, that she's far away. Yeah. But look at page 10. Yeah. She looks like a hooded Jawa. She does. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. you know. It's a very bulky poncho thing that, that I don't remember Vulcans ever wearing. Yeah, and she, it's just it's just her size that just does she doesn't it, they fail. <laughs> look look where she's following him like <laughs> yeah, yeah I get it. Okay, I have one last comment before we move on, uh, or before somebody else t- does another comment. But I don't know if you guys are old enough for this. Brian might be, Donovan <laughs> you aren't, but there are some scenes with Kirk at the beginning on the boat with the captain hat on. It just mm-hmm. totally reminds me of Captain, Captain and Neil. No. Is that what you're gonna say? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Although now that you mention it, no. <laughs> Captain Action. Captain Action. Okay, okay so Captain when I was a kid, Action? I had a toy, many toys, but this particular one was Captain Action. And you remember G.I. Joe's? The original I remember G.I. Joe's. Yeah, I remember G.I. Joe's, the big ones. The original ones. G.I. Joe's, not the little ones they came out yeah, with the later. Big ones. Yeah, yeah, the I remember big ones. Okay, so I don't know whether it was maybe to say toy company or not, but Captain Action was about the same size as the original G.I. Joe's. And the thing about this is he came in his little blue jumpsuit or whatever, and he had a a captain's hat on, which was just like the one that Kirk is wearing, only it was all navy colored. And uh, he used to be able to to change his clothes, and you could make him into Aquaman or Batman or all these other kind of characters. It's kind kind of a cool thing. But seeing him in this totally reminded me of Captain Action. So I've dated myself. I think we're the same era. Reference. I think we're the same. I think we're about the same era, but I do not remember Captain Action. Oh, that's even worse. Okay. Well, in fairness, my father like this is you know if you knew my father, this doesn't fit him at all. But he wouldn't let me play with GI Joes because he didn't want his son playing with dolls. Dolls, exactly. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. I got. So no Captain Action for me. Damn it. You know what? You know what, Ken? Uh, once you mentioned Captain Action and told oh, yeah. me what he was, I, I have seen him. Um, what well, that he had, that he was basically a uh, like a cross between a GI Joe and a a, a Mego type uh, action figure. I'm not sure what Mego is, but he was kind of halfway between an a, uh, a superhero kind of action figure and a GI Joe. Right. And actually, you could turn him into. Uh, I think they were mostly DC superheroes right yeah it was uh i think spider-man and and captain america were in there too but it was superman batman lone ranger things like that yeah i think there was actually a uh i think there was actually a comic book too there was a comic was it was it dc or was it dc or marvel i have no idea it's one of those things i had when i was a kid and i've never seen it again as an adult Mm. i think you need to do some ebay searching (laughs) (laughs) he's right okay I'll I'll get right out find anything (laughs) well I'll take your word for it that he looked just like uh, Captain Action with his hat well pretty much like it not exactly but he totally reminded me of it and and Brian you thought it was Captain and Tennille Captain and (laughs) Muskrat love it didn't occur to me until he was talking about being dating and back when we were younger and I saw and when I went back and I saw the hat I was like that's it Captain Nintendo yeah, that is Captain and that's the same color and everything 
And was that a white, a white top of the hat and the, the dark brim? Oh, those are painful times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And so since we may or may not see the critters again, I'm not, not going to spoil anything, but you mentioned uh, in space you can always – no one can hear you scream. They look like synopsis. aliens, yeah. They look like the – I mean uh, the wow. mouth I could see, but the rest of the creature doesn't look like the alien. Yeah, and well, really, the, the mouth looks like a piranha fish. Right. Right, with the all, teeth. All like an angler fish. Uh, an angler fish, yeah. yeah, probably. But just kind of the whole shape of the head and the... Yeah, and the, the aliens didn't have all the little, the little insect legs. I get it. It's not exactly. It's not, like, precisely, but I definitely evo- evocative of yeah. the... Yeah. And, and they're tough little boogers, so they definitely right. act like the alien. You know, and they shoot this stuff at you, which is not... Well, they cocoon you. That was it. They cocoon yeah. you, the... The crew is all kind of stuck up in the turbo lift. Right. So the, the cocooning and the general insectoid kind of uh, dark threat from the unknown, uh, that, that is evocative, evocative of the Alien movies. Right. So, anyways, I just wanted to, to bring that up in case it, it never comes up again. Well, it might, because as this thing goes on, I'm eventually going to tell you what, at least, I, I, don't mention, I mentioned it to you this guy, to you guys this before, but I, I completely by the ten, end of this issue, I completely have an idea about what these creatures are, and this will come up again. Okay. Say. By the end, this will come up again. All right, sounds good. All right, so we ready to jump to the next section? Let's go. So the second third of the book starts off on the yacht. Kirk is standing there, and he's thinking that he owes to sell, and that uh, he had vowed that the creatures would never attack anyone again. A small boat pulls up next to the larger vessel, and a blonde man asks if he can come aboard. Kirk gives them permission, and the younger man throws a large duffel bag onto the deck. And actually, he throws it on Kirk, and he falls over in a slapsticky-type move. Uh, then the young man and Savick, who is still wearing her uniform, climb the ladder and come aboard. Uh, Gillian is a little surprised at the unexpected guests. But her anger is soon quenched when the man is identified as Lars Noel and that it, the duffel bag he's carrying is filled with clothes from the 1980s. She rushes into her cabin to try them on. Kirk soon joins her, and she is now wearing some tacky cut-off jeans. She guesses that Kirk is about to leave her on some sort of secret mission. He confirms her suspicions, but says that he needs Starfleet and some other people to continue to think that he's there, so Lars will stay aboard while he is out. He says that Lars has many questions about her life in the 20th century, and that uh, he will be back in time for Gracie to give birth. So we flash to Space Dock above Earth, and it's actually Space Dock Challenger. The Yards Master is taking a fly over the Enterprise A. He recalls all the times that the various captains of the Enterprise has taken her out, and that he's always in charge of putting her back together. Until the last time when Kirk took her out and she never came back. He states that since the Enterprise is not on an actual mission, it is being transferred to the Lunar Holding Station until it is called into duty. We flash into the rec room of the Enterprise. Spock and McCoy are in a heated 3D chess match. A crowd of young recruits have gathered around to watch, all surprised that McCoy is able to hold his own against the Vulcan. A young woman named Finney tries to get a young man to place a bet, but he wisely declines. Sulu soon interrupts 
and calls McCoy and Spock to the bridge, thus ending the game. En route to the bridge, McCoy and Spock discuss how McCoy might have picked up a thing or two from having Spock's Katra in his brain for, uh, for a little bit. Once they're on the bridge, Sulu and Chekhov join the duo in some light banter. On the space dock, Ahura is speaking with Commander Janice Rand about some recent personnel changes. Rand says that she wishes she was going with them, but assures her that no one will notice the change in the personnel rosters. Back on the ship, Sulu starts to pilot the ship out of space dock on a quick little three-hour tour around the solar system. Meanwhile, Chekhov and Scotty are both busy making preparations with their respective staff. The lovely young Miss Finney arrives in sickbay to speak with McCoy. She asks McCoy if Kirk is okay after losing Spock, the Enterprise, and then his son. She says that he is like family to her and that she would do anything for him. McCoy assures her that he is fine and she departs sickbay. Once alone, McCoy thinks about the motivations that drive people. He thinks about how Kirk must be dealing with survivor's guilt, and then he drifts away to a time long past. Suddenly the scene shifts, and we're at the end of the episode, The Doomsday Machine. Listening to McCoy's log, wherein he refers to the Doomsday device as, and I quote, the cornucopia from hell. An SOS comes in, encrypted. Ohura can only make out that it is in esoteric Vulcan, addressed to Kirk, references the Farragut, and is coming from an uncomfortably close Romulan neutral zone. Right from the flight path of the Doomsday device. So Kirk assumes it's another victim of the device calling for help. Off they go to Spock and Scotty's protests. There, they find two Romulan birds of prey. One, the classic model, and the other, the Klingon-like design that the Romulans started using because someone stepped on the model. The two are connected, and they can't figure out what's going on, so Kirk beams aboard, citing his long-ago promise to help ships in trouble, no matter who they are. They beam on board, and the Romulans are fighting, what? The same aliens that destroyed the Farragut. Who'd have guessed? The Enterprise joins the fight. They get to the cruiser ship, and leave the beasties on the smaller bird of prey, and they sever the connection. After the fight, the Romulan commander struts out, and it's a woman, and Kirk states, You! And she gets all flirty, and eventually we figure out that it's Tassel, who, it turns out, is half Romulan, and when she was picked up by the Romulans, realized that she is much more suited to Romulan passions than to Vulcan logic. Basically, she came out as a Romulan, and is now in command of the Phoenix the bird of prey. Kirk notes that the Farragut and the Phoenix were attacked hard on the heels of a major celestial event. The Romulan ship with the creatures moves off and Tassel orders the Phoenix to follow and cloak. Kirk points out that the Romulans are in rough shape and suggests an alliance, but she declines and off they go. Cut back to the red uniform era the Enterprise is leaving space dock and is to be moored behind the moon. But Spock and Sulu deploy a drone to imitate the Enterprise to sensor readings so that they can sneak away. Now we're in the motion picture era, just after the V'ger incident. Wait a minute, didn't Star Trek comic book review cover all of the motion picture era stories already? 
Sorry, I digress. Spock is musing about Kirk's order to bring them near Klingon space. He suspects Kirk is hunting something. They find the debris of an apparent Klingon ship. The Phoenix approaches with Tassel in command. She asks him to meet her on the remains of the Klingon ship, where they find our little creatures dead. And a Klingon terror weapon that can blow a hole through a planet. But Kirk is more concerned with having it out with Tassel and demands an explanation as to why Tassel went Romulan. Never felt right as a Vulcan, always knew I was a Romulan inside, that sort of thing. She gets back to business as stating that there is a split that she's perceived between the bumpy-headed race of Klingons and the smooth-headed race of Klingons. There's a whole lot of speculation at this point. Creatures, Doomsday Machine, Viger, Klingons with kick-butt weapons, Celestial Bermuda Triangle, it all gets a little confusing. But she lets on that the last time that they met, the creatures got away. And Tassel's been obsessed with it all and has made herself a pariah trying to warn the Romulan Empire about a danger she can't quite name. Now they have evidence of the creatures right there. But in order to reveal them and therefore prove both Kirk and Tassel's right about the stories of the creatures, the evidence would also mean showing the Klingon terror weapon, and that would mean war. He suggests that they take the schematics to create a balance of terror, and yes, we get the reference. Kirk states the invaders will be back and urges Tassel to stay with him, but alas, she leaves because the Phoenix is now her home, just as the Enterprise is now Kirk's. Hmm. Now, he's still Admiral, all right, at this point? I think you're right, yeah. Because this would be immediately, they make it sound like it's immediately, they're still checking on what happened to V'ger's path. They're, right. they're following back the path of V'ger. Still Admiral. So he's still Admiral. Hasn't been busted back yet. Right. Well, I'm just saying, so technically the Enterprise is not his. He's just borrowing it. You're right. I'm going to go see if that was a... But no, I think you're right. It does say that. Hmm. And no, nobody remembers Decker anyway, so might as well be Kirk's. Even oh, though we just had references exactly. to the Doomsday Machine. Yeah, that would have been a nice touch. Well, not only that, but also when the Enterprise A was in dry dock and the shipmaster, the dock master, li- listed off all the different captures on the Enterprise, he did mention Decker. Right. You know, the, the thing that one of the things that didn't really work for me in the story is this is clearly supposed to take place right after Star Trek Four. Because when Star Trek V starts, they still haven't finished working out the bugs of the Enterprise, and they're still. And uh, I think Scott makes a Scotty makes a comment about you know the captain said let's see what she's got, and then we found out that there's all these issues. And in that time, you know, Kirk and uh, the boys are out camping in that very painful scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so when does this happen? This big time on the ship and this whole story and adventure, you know, it doesn't really feel like it fits. I agree with you. It doesn't make sense, but. Maybe Details. the maybe the end of this story will end kind of uh, with a vacation shot. We don't know. We don't know how it ends yet. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I totally get what you're saying, though. Yeah, yeah. It's just they tried to cram it in. I feel like sometimes the comics have done a really masterful job of kind of like like you know, Weaving. if you were reading the stories in between um, two and three, the films two and three. You know, they took it off and did all this kind of stories, but they kept it in the continuity because 
I guess I'm thinking about between three and four because the Enterprise was gone and Spock wasn't there. And right, I, I was gonna. That's what I was gonna say too. Because and then by the time they knew four was gonna happen, they started trying to bring it all back. Exactly. Well, you know, Cap Kirk is not captain of the Excelsior. We'll start giving McCoy some little quirks that he may or may not have. Spock's Katra. I thought they did a great job in that one. Yeah, which we haven't too. covered yet. So and and. Ken and, and that. You know, of course, you still had to suspend your disbelief and say, "Okay, this is a comic book. Obviously, it doesn't fit into the continuity." But I don't know why that bugged me here. Why would you say that? Of course, it fits in continuity. It has Star Trek on the cover. <laughs> it has to fit. Yes, here at both Star Trek and comic books, the geek hybrid that we are so <laughs> <Exactly>. fond of. <laughs> so we we've love seen. It all. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We love it all. I do deeply. So we've seen Tassel now in three different outfits. Uh, so far, what is your guy's favorite? In this comic? Yeah. So we saw her in her Vulcan outfit. We saw her in the Taz Romulan outfit. And then we saw her in that weird robe thing she has during the uh, motion picture era. Well, I like the robe thing, the, the, the Jawa outfit the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then when she's got the short miniskirt when he first sees her as Captain of the Phoenix, it's okay. I, I, I like the upper thigh stuff, but, you know, uh, that that's the next least favorite. Yeah, well, and also that wasn't exactly original. You know, that was right out of the TV series, which it was right. supposed to be. And, and, and I don't know about you guys, but this is one of my notes. In that scene when she first comes on, I really didn't get it. I thought that she was the um, sub-commander from the Enterprise incident who never is named. She doesn't have a name. And when he says you and doesn't really say her name, I'm but thinking... You know that's who it is? Yeah. Yeah. She never gets a name. No. She doesn't have a name. But, you know... That's the ones I don't remember, but, yeah. Well, you know how I actually figured it couldn't be her. Before they said the name, I thought, wait a minute. At first I thought they made a mistake, but I think Doomsday Machine comes way before Enterprise Incident. So it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, Doomsday is second series. Enterprise Enterprise, uh, Incident is third season. Right. Dreaded third season. We've been over this, Ken. I know. I, I think I actually have a list of... You said to me something like, in the last time I was on, you know, I said something about gems that turned up in the third season in the, amongst the sea of junk. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So actually, I think I made a list. I don't think I ever sent it to you, though. <laughs> en- Enterprise incidents it. I'm sorry. That's about it. Yeah, we've been down this road, man. <laughs> <laughs> I... I, I as far as outfits are concerned, I could care less about her outfits. However, on page 23, after they were able to uh, get away from, from the original encounter on a Farragut, and they're at the space station, the secret uh, space station near the neutral zone, there's a shot where she's got her like her head forward a little bit and her hair's all tousled and stuff. Very hot. <laughs> where she doesn't look like she has a shirt. Exactly. <laughs> I think she's naked. <laughs> Clearly. Or look at the next panel. Anyway. 23, uh, did you see? I'm still finding that, it. Oh, it's on page 23? Page 23, right um, a couple panels before she says, oh live long and prosper and remember. Yeah. She just not wearing any clothes there. That's what they want us to think. That's what they want you to think. But then you well, see not... she's got like some kind of tank top or something on. Yeah, she's got her jumpsuit on. She got, she's ready for her... You don't know uh, how long she was talking in between those two panels. She could have put it back on. <laughs> <laughs> so how injured are you, Kirk, buddy? <laughs> oh, well. 
Let's test it out. Anyways, I, the reason why I brought up the outfit thing is because I liked her outfit in the uh, Taz Romulan outfit. Uh, I never liked it on the TV show, but like we've said, a lot of times in comic book, it it works, and I think it works on her. You like the mini skirt? Cool. I, a lot. I mean. I liked it here, but when you watch it on the TV show, I hate it. I think it looks yeah. really silly. But here, she's she's working it. Did, did the Roman <laughs> commander have those hip high boots there that she's, you know, the ones that go up past her knee? I don't remember. I don't know, but they look good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, go ahead with some of your comments. I don't want to monopolize the time. Well, one of my comments here that it just went now they've introduced McCoy, who's really one of my absolute favorite characters. I I hated, hated how they tried to include his southern accent in the actual language of yep. the comic book. Agree. You know, they made him sound like Br'er Rabbit. <sighs> and and I always thought that, you know, frankly, McCoy's southern accent was pretty understated. You know, I didn't think it was Overwhelming, and I was trying to read around it after a while because it just bugged me. Well, it's not just McCoy; it's also Scotty and Chekhov. Uh, and and it was annoying with them too. And Chekhov keeps coming in with with the actual Russian phrases. I guess he must have thought that was a great thing that they when they did that. Yeah, when he gets you know, excited during battle, yeah, because he keeps coming back to it. But you know, Scotty's. I guess he gets maybe get used to it. And yes, it did annoy me there too. But that just it was really bugging me. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, agreed. I feel so affirmed. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Because you're good enough. <laughs> and gosh darn it. Okay. All right, so so during the little prelude part, the little um, back to normal time when, when they're doing the chess match, uh, on page 31, it shows a woman that they referred to as Finney. When she's about to make the bet uh, on the very top of page thirty-one. Yeah, that's she's she's from the original series. Well, look at Finney on page um, thirty-six when she goes in there to talk to McCoy. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, that's bo- not the same Finney. It has to be the same Finney. It is. But she's smoking hot in one page, and the other page she does not look as good as she does on page 35, 36. <laughs> I got to go back. But definitely, definitely Finney is a, is a cute little thing when you see her. Um, and I'm trying to find the page numbers. I wish the page numbers were more consistently showing yeah. on, the, yeah. uh, on the DVD. Well, but anyway. Uh, yeah, go to yeah. page 31. That one, that one actually has the little number at the bottom. And she's on the top, and she, you know, looks a little plump, let's say. And then when it shows her again on page 36, she is not. Right. Is that a drawing error? Because I completely agree with you. I thought it was a different person at first. Yeah. And, then, and then when I, I caught that, oh, wait, that's Finney, too. They have the same name. I can't really well, remember they, they, what the character looked like on the actual TV show. I think she was much younger then. And well, she yeah, was, she was like 12 or 13 years old then. Right. Um, she, yeah, she didn't, I mean, she looked like, uh, it, the actress that played her, I'd seen her in t- uh, some other 60s shows, so she had done little guest stars before, so I recognized her 
I, I know what she looks like if you show me a picture of her, but I can't tell you what she looks like. She's like one of those faces. <laughs> right, right. But uh, neither one of these look like her. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I just thought it was funny that it was inconsistent. But I do like that they brought her in. I can't remember the episode that she was in. Um, oh, it's... Um, the, uh, the one where her, her dad... Father... Court martial. Court martial. Yes, that's it. Where they use the microphone that's supposed to be the special device that mutes out their heart sound. <laughs> it's one of the worst. <laughs> it's like it doesn't doesn't they don't don't buy it at all, you know? Yeah. Right, and then then her dad Finney is is a total nut job. Ben Finney, yeah. So it turns out. But uh, so obviously that's what she meant when she says he's like family to her because I think they say in that episode that she's his Kirk's goddaughter. Yeah, something like that. There's just some connection like that. But I thought that was a little random. If you didn't know who she was, I don't think it would seem kind of odd that she's just he's like my he's like family to me. It it just seemed weird if you didn't know who she was. Yeah. Yeah, and again, she's that that was a pretty good reference. If if that was one of the only times that he tries to bring in these the old stuff, I thought that that was kind of a cool reference. But I felt again a good example of how I felt like he was trying to work out all of his Star Trek stuff in these ninety six pages is. Did did he really have to get into the whole bumpy-headed, smooth-headed Klingon and try to work that through? And, you know, the, and that was interesting. I thought it was interesting just because it was yet another theory. Right. Right, and, it, and it'll come into play later that I have I have comments later, but I agree with you. You know, it's kind of like... He didn't have to do that, and he didn't have to have all those other um, other captains and stuff either towards the end, which we haven't got to We yet. haven't got there yet. But <laughs> there were a lot of things that were just plain gratuitous. Well, yeah, for example, and I actually Donovan pointed it out to me that because I, I missed it. I missed this reference completely. The guy that's supposed to replace Kirk on the yacht is actually a reference to a historian or from an episode. Where was it from? Oh, really? Uh, the Gamer of... The Gamesters of Triskelion. Tr- yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah. my God. Really? Yeah, he <laughs> was the guy that was down on the planet with the, uh, like the chaps on or the, the leather shirt tunic thing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Really? I mean, he's just a random guy that you wouldn't know who he was. Yeah, huh. so that—that's exactly that was gratuitous, you know. And I don't know. Usually, I'm the guy that appreciates those references. When well, yeah. if, if it fits into the story, down. if it fits into the story, like the Finny thing, she's a major player in the story. So I like that they brought her up. I just wish they would have kind of given you a. a better idea of who she was right uh but oh well <laughs> they didn't or do they i mean you guys just read no, it they did. did they ever mention that she's his goddaughter oh yeah uh in this yeah. story did in this story well I, i'm not sure about the god the godfather thing but uh they definitely did make mention of her father and all the reasons she's trying to overcompensate Right. right, the motivation. So I, I like that. So I, at least I knew who she was okay. when, they, when they talked about that. Yeah, they referenced the story. They referenced the the relationship. Yeah, which is which is which is a nice organic way to do it. it it's not on the nose. It's like they let they kind of lead you out there. Let you but, figure out the rest of it. Yeah, don't take you all the way home. I, I like since they are jumping back and forth in time a lot. They're having to draw the characters. At various different ages. Mm-hmm. So even though they're a little idealized in the motion picture time frame, 
I mean, well, not the motion, not the first motion picture, not not Star Trek One, but as you start to get to four and stuff, mm-hmm. um, they're a little idealized then. But I think they do a pretty good, oh, pretty okay job of drawing a young Kirk on the Farragut, different enough that right. you say, yeah, he looks young. And then when they fast forward to the uh, post Doomsday weapon uh, little storyline. It is good because you can tell Kirk is older there and that kind of stuff, but still nowhere near as old as where how he is uh, when he's on the boat with Gillian. But I got I got to just mention that part of the reason they make you look younger or whatever is they they make you thinner. And I got to tell you, yeah, uh, there's that shot when Kirk you first see Kirk on the Enterprise in the, in the captain's chair. I was I, I have a note about that. And and he's got that wraparound uh, shirt kind of thing, which I always thought was a cool <laughs> shirt. It's just that. Let me tell you something. William Shatner <laughs> never looked that skinny in that shirt. You're <laughs> right. You're right. <laughs> you know, um, he, I he, had the same note. Yeah. He, he, he looks really – he doesn't just look, you know, um, fit or, or – he looks skinny in that shot. It's, right. it's, and, it's way and, over the top. Exactly. So Kirk was always, you know, I don't think all those donuts in the CBS commissary was going to allow him to quite – you know, be that loose in, a, in an outfit, and he wasn't in the TV series, but he is. Here. <laughs> so yeah, you can actually see his weight go up and down quite a bit when you watch the show in order. You know, <laughs> right. in production order or in aired order. Um, they, they, either because they're pretty close. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's some differences, but you know, if you do it in series. Um, and then I read somewhere in one of the many books that when he did the motion picture, that he like started running six months before they started filming, and he, and that's why he actually looks pretty trim in the motion pictures. Yeah, he really works hard at that, and and good thing with those uniforms, the pajamas, pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. And gentlemen, cool. it's Jillian, not Gillian. It's Gillian, just like Gilligan, except it's, not... it's a woman version. <laughs> that's what the hat is a reference to <laughs> the skipper <laughs> exactly alright so it's pronounced what because I've been mispronouncing it my whole life I think it's Jillian like, like, like J yeah the, yeah a J it, sound it, okay. okay that's fine that's fine although I will say that there is a real name with a J Jillian but that's fine <laughs> and that's what it's supposed to be with a J no it's a G it is a G. But... We'll go with a J. Jillian. Jillian. Sounds good. Let's go. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> if you guys are done, were you all a little confused on page 45 when and if they launched that probe? Because it showed like a, a panel on the top that the probe was dropped, and then the next panel, the one below it, shows the, the probe still inside the Enterprise launch bay with the checkoff. That was confusing because it looks like they're lowering it like a photon torpedo. Right into the tubes, and that's after it's you. They already showed it outside the ship. I think that's totally confusing. Okay, all right. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Yeah, I I, I didn't didn't get it. Yeah, I just went with it. And the fact that they had to program the thing, uh, what Doctor Daystrom itself programmed it. It's like, geez, they're doing a lot of stuff to. Getting all these these crewmen together, special crew, and you know, fancy probe. It's like, geez, what? They're going to a lot of trouble for this. Man. Yeah, yeah, I didn't buy it actually. You know, it, Star Trek Three worked because it was this small group of in a in a fast renegade kind of situation, and they, they're kind of right. building on that whole idea here. And it it's so much to pull together 
um, I don't know. I just didn't buy it. Yeah. It, it didn't work dramatically. Especially when you really find out how many people from the past that Yeoman Rand, or Commander Rand now, was able to get onto the ship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nobody cool. notices. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a second. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, I got one more qu- uh, thing. And this is just, uh, I want to tell you guys what frame of mind I was in when I was reading this. When Tassel tells Kirk to, you know, live long and prosper there on the, um, the outpost before she leaves him. And she kisses him and says, and remember. Mm-hmm. I through this whole book, I had been reading a lot into that because obviously that's the last thing Spock tells McCoy before he dies. I think that's what they're referencing. But so I, when we get into this third act, I'm really waiting for that to pay off, and uh, I want to I want to hear what you guys think. All right. So. Yeah, does he or does he not have her Katra? Because I kept thinking, well, she's doing all this crazy well, stuff with the Romulans because her Katra's not even in her body anymore. It's actually in Kirk because she thought she was about to die. He does say at the end of that act, you know, I feel like she's a part of me. So she's a part of me, right. I see oh, her every time I close my eyes. It's like she's still there. And oh I was like, of course, because you have her Katra. Oh, my God. Really? I'm telling you that's what I was thinking. And, and then oh, I... Well, now that you mention it, that makes sense. It's just like... But is it all or nothing? Do you have to like give somebody your Katra? Can't you just... I, I, think they I don't know. I've that. never met a Vulcan that told me how their Katra <laughs> works. <laughs> so, so maybe they give you a little so, Katra? So young, so naive. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, when we get into this third act, the, uh, the final act, uh, I, I'm really waiting for that to pay off. And, uh, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. We'll be rooting for you. Thanks. <laughs> um, Donovan, you go to such extremes sometimes. <laughs> well, you got to admit. It, it, you, it, do you not you see what I'm it, saying? I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, and I, I did see it myself when I read it. I had the same thought. I said, when I said remember, I said, something's going on here. They're planting some seed that they're going to pick up later dramatically. Right. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Does anybody else have comments before we jump in? Well, more a question than a comment. I sort of alluded to this in the um, in the synopsis, but on page forty-eight, which is when they're trying—I mean, talk about a page with too much text on it. I mean, it's just what, and it, it's almost like the the drawings are superf- superfluous to text. I just couldn't quite get what they were all talking about. It's almost hard to follow this whole you know, conversation about what's going on with the the Bermuda Triangle and did you get it? The sort of Damocles and all that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It was it took me a couple times. I had to read it twice. Yeah. Yeah. But but in the end I don't think it I think it makes sense. You just have to read it a few times. But was right. it necessary? Yeah. Right. Simplify a little bit. You know, we we have we have quite a bit of education between us. We shouldn't have to read our comic books twice. <laughs> That's why we're reading comic books, not novels. Oh, you're saying that comic books are, are a lesser form of literature? I'm not. I'm saying just that. saying that we should understand sure, them on the first not. read. <laughs> That's the purpose. Uh, good point. <laughs> okay. Sorry. <clears throat> The story fast-forwards to the post-fourth movie, pre-fifth movie time frame after the Enterprise left the moon's orbit 
on their clandestine mission. Kirk and Savick are in a shuttlecraft flying around multiple asteroids. She awakens Kirk and reports they are at the rendezvous point. We find out that this is where Kirk spent some time after the Farragut incident in the Federation outpost. We find out Gorn, Romulans, and even the First Federation all had outposts in this area and that they all eventually abandoned them due to losing ships. Some attributed to bad luck. Kirk has other ideas about that. They notice the approach of a ship, and Kirk calls it their first guests. When the ship turns out to be the Enterprise, Kirk is not happy and orders an open hailing frequency and for them to be brought aboard. Though Kirk wanted to do this apparently only risking himself and Savick, Spock and the entire crew knew what Kirk was up to, and they could not let him risk whatever he's doing alone. Beyond Kirk's traditional command staff, he finds out that many former crewmen from the Enterprise past are aboard. Kirk calls out Garavik, Riley, Bailey, Kyle, Carolyn Palamas, Mira Romaine, in complete shock. Bailey gives greetings from Balok of the First Federation ship Fasarius, who wishes Kirk good hunting. Kirk is overwhelmed by the best and brightest that have been assembled to take part in this fight of a common threat. Suddenly, a yellow alert is sounded. A Klingon Katinga-class cruiser is approaching them. As Kirk enters the bridge, Jamie Finney is at the con reporting the Klingon ship's shields are down and weapons are in standby mode, just like the Enterprise. Lieutenant Finney reports a Romulan ship running cloaked is also likely in the area given the uh, de Broglie turbulence that they picked up close by. Kirk broadcasts a welcome to the other ships. Core of the Klingon ship and Tassel of the Romulan ship reply to the hail and welcome each other to the hunt. The two captains agree to converge on the Enterprise. Sulu takes the con as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy leave the bridge to convene the Council of War. The young'uns on the bridge ask Sulu what the captain thinks he's doing colluding with the Federation's enemies. Sulu explains that these three finest captains of their respective fleets can do things covertly that their governments could never do publicly. He ends with a Mission Impossible-style closing that says if this all blows up in their faces, the governments will just call it a rogue, unsanctioned mission by the notorious scoundrel James T. Kirk. At a triangular conference table, the three captains sit at each point. Kor makes a strong case for his ship taking point and being the bait. Kirk agrees to it, and the Enterprise will stay close to the Romulan ship as it extends its cloak around the Enterprise. When the Mystery Insectoids attack, the trap will be sprung. An away team is formed of McCoy, Chekhov, Lieutenant Finney, and some medical staff to transport to the Klingon ship. There they will mark every crewman with a transponder that will facilitate a fast transport off the ship if the Enterprise has to do it. The petite Lieutenant Finney proves her ability in hand-to-hand combat skills when she is forced to knock to the ground a much larger Klingon female officer. Impressed, Kor informs her that her defeat of Kadri entitles her to take her place on the command staff of the Revenge. She begrudgingly accepts and transports to the Revenge. Preparations are made to link the Enterprise to the Romulan ship Phoenix, 
so that additional power can be fed into the Romulan ship's cloaking device. Mr. Scott's engineering genius is working overtime to make this work. The ships will have to fly so closely that Sulu's piloting abilities will be tested like never before. After plenty of work, the Romulan and Federation crews are able to make it work, and they move out. From the Revenge, Chekhov reports that the Phoenix and Enterprise are successfully fading from visual and electronic detection. Lots of friends and enemies were made during that Herculean task between the two crews. Not long into the hunt, projectiles start impacting the Revenge's hull. They are under attack. Corps calls, Battle Stations! The Revenge's sensors are left on and broadcasting so the Enterprise and Phoenix can see the attack. The Klingons are putting up a valiant fight, but they are overwhelmed as the Farragut was so many years ago. Technical difficulties are getting in the way of getting a lock on all the crew, even with the subdermal radio tags. However, Scotty's finally able to overcome it and starts beaming the Revenge's crew over. Kor and Chekhov are fighting side by side as their peril increases with every beamed away crewman. Entire phaser power packs are consumed to kill just one creature. Kor saves Chekhov's life as another attacker bursts up through the floor. Most of the crew is being back to the Enterprise except for Chekhov, Kor, Nurse Chapel, and Lieutenant Finney. Kirk is pressured by Scotty and McCoy to drop the cloak and let them overcome the interference and beam the rest back. Kirk refuses and says they have to see what the creatures will do next and they can't do that if they're detected. Finally, with McCoy in Kirk's face, he explodes and does the old needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few routine, which finally quells the argument. Later, after the attack is over and the remaining revenge crew is given up for dead, the ranking surviving Cleon officer pledges his surviving people's service to the fight. Kirk tosses Scotty a tricorder with sensor data on the creatures taken during the attack and also designs for a gun. Kirk asks Scotty to build it with all due haste. The sensor data showed that they are more resistant to energy weapons than direct attack with the right solid weapons. Klingon edge weapons and Romulan projectile rifles will be the most effective for the next battle. A relatively wimpy crewman named McMurphy and Tassel's well-muscled daughter named Subcommander Takir start up an odd relationship as Tassel prepares for war with those cool Romulan projectile rifles. Kirk has a long discussion with Tassel. She suggests they should take their two ships and explore the frontier together. Think of the adventure. However, Mr. Responsible Kirk says it's not that simple. Before Kirk can complete blowing to sell off on the idea, he sees something through the handy window in front of him. Out of a flash of light, next to the vengeance, a huge blob of tan-colored matter comes into existence. It almost looks like a roughly circular brain. Very organic and disgusting looking. If this is a ship, it's the ugliest one in the quadrant. Kirk gives the order to train all passive sensors on that thing. Monitor all radiation that might be a means of communication omitting, emitting from it. All sensor data to be analyzed by the computer and cross-checked. Mr. Spock to do essentially the same thing. 
Uhura to work on detecting and translating any communication signals. Black tendrils issue from the blob and begin to wrap around the revenge. Spock asks to use active scans to learn more about the creature, but Kirk says no. They cannot let the creature detect. Kirk forms an away team that he will lead to investigate the alien ship. Both he and Tassel go. As Sulu takes the small Romulan assault craft on a powerless parabolic course towards the massive alien ship, they take passive sensor readings and visual assessment close up. The aliens are working in open space to dismantle the Revenge. As they pass close to the Revenge's command deck, they spot human figures and Kirk gives the order to ram the Klingon ship. The reinforced nose of the assault craft is designed to penetrate hulls, and it does so. Kor, Chekhov, Lieutenant Finney, Christine Chapel, and others are saved by the cavalry's rather loud entrance. More bugs attack, and Takur is severely wounded. Spock contacts Kirk and reports that they have isolated what appears to be a command nexus deep in the ship. A portion of the team transports over to it while Chekhov takes command of the Romulan assault shuttle and withdraws with the wounded to the Enterprise. They materialize in the truly alien ship. Spock and Savick join them as the most talented scientists on the away mission begin to immediately analyze the ship from inside close up. Spock and Savick say the aliens' origins are far from our known space, maybe even beyond the Milky Way galaxy. The ship travels by tearing rifts in the space-time continuum through which it travels instantaneously from one place to another. Lieutenant Finney finds a group of semi-translucent pods that appear to contain humans, Gorns, Romulans, and other species, but something about them is not quite right. McCoy's analysis of the, of the pods is cut short when one of them breaks open and a green-skinned, hairless version of Diane Moorwood, formerly of the Farragut, leaps out and attacks. Her speed and strength easily overcomes all the defenders. Kirk ends up getting through to her still-present humanity with his silver tongue, and the attack stops. The monstrosity, formerly Diane Morwood, tells them that the alien race is bent on conquering the entire cosmos and considers the people of the Alpha Quadrant little more than meat. She says they need to leave immediately since the alien ship is preparing to depart back to its home space. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk formally turns down to Sell's offer to come away with her to explore the galaxy. Back on the respective ships, the two captains make ready to fire the cannon Mr. Scott has completed. Kirk intends to fire it at the Revenge as it and the alien ship enters the open event horizon. The explosion should be magnificent and utterly destroy the alien ship. Before the plan can be executed, the aliens detect the cloaked Enterprise and Phoenix. Tentacles are deployed to snare both ships. Photon torpedoes are launched to no effect. The Phoenix and her brave captain gets moving and draws the tentacles' attention. She turns into the rift, and the alien ship follows her. Seeing no way to stop to sell and an opportunity to destroy the alien ship, Kirk orders the cannon to be fired as the Enterprise enters high warp. The Enterprise has escaped the Nova that was the creature's dimensional tear in space. Tassel is lost to the other side of the universe. 
In the observation deck of the Enterprise sometime later, Kirk explains to Takar about her mother's sacrifice. Takar asks why Kirk did not travel with Tissel to explore the true unknown. Kirk tells the story about how he once risked everything and lost someone very important to him just to save Spock. He wishes that that person that he feels the incredible loss was for his son, but he admits that it was actually the loss of the Enterprise. He says that the ship deserved an honorable send-off, but instead it was destroyed as a rogue and disgraced ship. If he followed to sell, then he would not be able to ensure that the new Enterprise's reputation does not follow that of the original. Takur seems to understand and says that she looks forward to living up to a phrase that her mother often chided her with, and that is to be painfully human. Kirk says that it would be his honor to help her with that. In the rec room, everyone is enjoying their recent success. Kor offers Finney a permanent position on his ship. After some deliberation, she accepts. Takur and Savik have a few words about being outcasts of the Romulan Empire. Kor then tells Kirk that they are ushering in the next generation in this odd union of Starfleet, Klingon, and Romulan. We then flash to the calm waters of the Pacific Ocean as Jillian uh, her, breaks the surface and uh, starts swimming towards the yacht. She climbs aboard and is surprised to see that Kirk is on the deck. After a quick embrace, she gets him suited up with some scuba gear and they are off into the water as Gracie gives birth. Sometime later, the two share a bottle of Chateau Picard and watch the sunset. They toast to new life and to new civilizations and to boldly go where no one has gone before. And then Kirk finishes and to the friends that they have found along the way to make the journeys of both the past and the future worth taking. And the end. Da, 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 da. Yes. Okay. You know, when I was reading that, I realized that's the first time I got to say the whole, you know, almost the whole opening credits of the show. <laughs> the most famous lines in Star Trek was in my synopsis. Exactly. While they drank Chateau Picard. Chateau Picard. Yeah, that was a nice I, touch. I like how they went to so much detail. Oh, it's a rich bouquet of blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I thought it would have been better if they hadn't mentioned it at all, but we just saw it on the bottle at the end. That would have right. been a little more t- a better touch. But it was nice anyway. <laughs> Well, what do you think, guys? Well, you know, I'm I'm glad that we broke this up into the three parts because I'm I can honestly say this third part kind of spun a little too much, like in too many directions, and I don't know. I I felt like it it went on a little long. Not not the synopsis, the actual story. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. I get it. Did you think? <laughs> did you agree? Uh, I agree. Yeah, I I, I think, think there was a little short. bit of. I'm sorry, Ken. I was talking over you. Say again. No, I I think it could have been. Chopped up a little bit, made a little briefer. Yeah, right. I, I don't think we needed the who's who of everybody that's ever been on Star Trek. No, right. definitely didn't need that. Now, did anybody go to the effort of finding out who those people were on page fifty-three? I I well, knew who most of them were. Don't I you know who they are? I didn't know a You're... couple of them, and I had to actually look them up. I didn't know who who um, Bailey was. Oh, Bailey. Bailey was He's the guy the who. Yeah, he's yeah, the kid well, that went on the first Federation ship with Bela. With Bela. Oh, 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 right, 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 right. After okay. a, a nice drink of Tranya. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's great. I, I always wanted Tranya because it sounded so damn good. <laughs> the way little Clint Howard was Howard. explaining it. 
Exactly. <laughs> Would you like? Well, I, I didn't know who Carolyn Palamas was. I didn't know. Oh, that you don't know I who she is. Well, She's the Leslie Parrish plays her in uh, Who Mourns for Adonis. She was the woman with the dress. You can't believe how it stays on. You know the Greek god. Yeah, he yeah, grows. The woman in that. Oh, okay. Was yeah, she yeah. stayed on the planet. So what? What? What is she doing here? And what is she doing in a Starfleet uniform? Because she she resigned to stay with Adonis. Well, she wants to change her mind. I don't. No, she didn't. Did she stay with Adonis? No. Because she didn't and, change her mind. I know she didn't change her mind. She loved Adonis. <laughs> well, in some of the other expanded universe stuff, she has a kid oh. with Adonis, and she's still there. So that's how I know, Ken. Uh, that's how I know. Well, that's the problem with all these alternate universe things. They don't necessarily consult with each other. Right. Well, okay. And Bailey, too. He he resigned to go off with... Stay Sam First Federation. Right. Yeah, but, but nothing says that he's going to stay with him forever. I mean, it no, I think, don't they make reference change. in this? Don't they make reference to the fact that... To the First Federation and that he's kind of been there and come right. back? Yeah, they they do, but... And, and by the way, they had he must have really liked the Corbomite maneuver. Right, they actually yeah. mentioned it by name. Well, right, and he keeps on bringing up the First Federation, like in three different places in the book. Yeah. Right, and and that was another note I had. Why is Balok not there? I think having Balok would have been a more interesting well. character <laughs> than Kor and some of the other random people. Well, if you would have had Balok there with his ship, the Fasarius, it would have been as, just as big as that meatball. <laughs> <laughs> but it yeah. would have been a it would have been a match. Yeah, it would have been a little toe to toe, right? Yeah, I got into that. Yeah, I think we all had the same reaction when they started listing all the random characters. It was like, okay, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you know? and, and Styles, why the hell Styles? Would Right. Styles hates Kirk, especially at this point, because it's right after Star Trek Three when he became. Uh, what, he was sabotaged. Whatever. Right. Yeah, That's sabotaged right. the excels here. Hmm. That seemed odd that he would risk his career to go do some stupid errand with with Kirk. Right. Yeah, that didn't work. And then that Kyle guy, I thought Did he was dead. Him? No. Oh, he might be from Star well, Trek Two. Yeah, he died. He was on the Reliant when he was Kyle on the Reliant. Him. Absolutely. Same actor played him. It was one of the greatest little Easter eggs in uh, in that film. Well, I thought it was great that Kyle was attacked by Khan and Space Seed. And then he got to be in Star Trek II, and, and he was part of the ship that got taken over by Khan. So <laughs> Kyle really gets the raw end of the deal when he comes up with Khan. <laughs> but I always thought he died. I thought everybody on the Reliant died except for um, the captain and Chekhov because they were the two being controlled right. by the bugs. They bought time for Genesis. So so did they actually... Oh, oh, hold on a second. Did they take the crew and put them on the uh, planet that Khan was on? Yeah. Didn't... Well, I don't know. Does it say they did? I just always no. assumed they did. They killed them. Though well, the people that were the people that died on the space station were the scientists. They're the ones that are hanging upside down. Rigor mortis right. hasn't set in. Right. The space station. Right. So those are. They were the ones that bought time. So the Reliant crew he abandoned. Just like he, just like Khan was abandoned, he abandoned the crew of the Reliant inside the center of you know a dead planet. So. So they actually say that. 
Well, okay, so what you're talking about is is when they put Kirk in there in Planet Genesis, right? Right. Right. Well, in the underground cave. Right. But, I mean, the full crew, the full complement of the Reliance, I mean, did they really slaughter all of them? Or did they, or did they put them someplace else on the planet? Beam them down to SETI Alpha Six or whatever. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. I think I think I, that's I, right. I, I would like to think that he didn't slaughter them all, but who knows? I always thought he killed them all, except yeah. for Chekhov and the captain, because they no. had the bugs on them. Yeah, I think but I think he, he killed them. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just that's what I always thought. Yeah. Well, he's a bad guy. Oh, you know, Kyle's still here, so clearly. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, this proves it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good point. That's it. Yeah. There you go. It's just logic, really. <laughs> there you go. Uh, thanks, you Brian. Got, uh, I, I guess I'm right. All right, Brian. I'll, I do I'll, what I can. I'll slip you that tip later. All right. <laughs> uh, okay. Did told... anybody else? Did anybody else in this story see Little Shop of Horrors? Oh uh, no, that that did not come to mind. But let, so inside the ship. Well, when they when what's her name the the friend of Kirk that was had been subsumed Diana or whatever Diana Morewood in the very beginning um, turns up to be the plant creature at the end. It just reminded me of Little Shop of Horrors. How did it remind you of Little Shop of Horrors? Well, I'm thinking about the original movie, Jack right, Nicholson, where all their heads were inside the. In the very end, the plant opens up and all the faces are there from the people that he ate. Right. So in this oh, story, see. the same thing happens. Yeah, I guess I see that. I was leaning more towards the alien um, reference because in the original alien film, uh, they established that the eggs were created or could be created by uh, a drone alien, i.e. I. the one that was on the Nostromo, mm-hmm. and that you could turn a human into an egg that would then turn into a face hugger that would then become uh, a queen or whatever. Oh, uh, really? Because they had a whole scene with uh, Tom Skerritt inside being cocooned, turning into an egg that they cut out from the original movie, but you can find oh, it on okay. special editions. Uh, I, I never saw that. Okay, so they cut but out. when I saw when I saw Finney fall down into this little thing of a bunch of eggs, and inside yes. the eggs was converted people, I was like, "Oh, this is straight from Alien." You know, the well, original Ridley Scott Alien. Well, except for the fact that they never showed that part you just talked about. I mean, they they showed them the, it, those eggs. I mean, to me, I, I never saw the direct link between the people that were cocooned up in the wall being uh, incapacitated and the fact that the people turn into the uh, into the egg. I, I I never I never drew that conclusion. Here, I just thought the story. people were the incubator. In in an alien. Yeah. 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 Well, that was that was one way, but if they, and it was also a deleted scene from. The aliens too. There was another scene with the comedian guy. Uh, what's his name? Paul oh. Reiser. Oh, there, there was a scene where she finds Paul Reiser, and he's kind of turning into a cocoon too. Or no, he was or just being turned into an egg. No, no, you're right. I'm wrong. Tom Skerritt was the only time they show a human turning into a, an egg. Uh, but they did delete that scene, so maybe it's not considered canon. But me being a big Alien oh. fan, uh, I'm well aware of that. I didn't know that. I did not know that. But anyways, that was the vibe I was getting from here, um, and well, it's a yeah. little different. But I'm just saying that was the vibe I was getting. Well, what I seeing those pods, the first thing I was thinking of was the pod people from Revenge um, of the Body Snatchers. That's it. 
That's the first thing I thought of. Uh, Revenge of the Body Snatchers. But but I, I this is also looks a lot like Alien. But I did like this. I mean, it was different. It wasn't exactly like Alien, but it had that Alien vibe. Yeah. And I really liked how she, uh, when she woke up, she was like, you know, I was just out for a couple of minutes. Why are you so old? And why am I a green, scaly monster? (laughs) I thought that was actually really good. Yeah, it was amazing that she really had that much of her humanity still left. Pretty handy, because she got to explain a few things. Just kind of odd that. That this alien life form seems to be so powerful and all-powerful and adaptable and everything that the human would be able to still have enough of herself there to do all the things she did for Kirk and the crew. But right. Handy that that happened. Well, and do they capture everybody and turn them into eggs? Because they're not the drones that attack the ship. I mean, those no. definitely look like their own little creatures. Yep. I, I, I don't know what they do with these people. Maybe they just turn them into some sort of collective so that they can have all their memories. I don't know. But mentioning collective, I see a lot of the Borg in this in this threat. Go on. Talk about that because you'd mentioned that before and I, want, I didn't get Borg at all. Okay. You've got a huge – you've got the Enterprise crew pitted up against an unknown scary assailant with a huge ship and – deadly kind of drone things that can attack and beam over to the ship, whatever. Although in this case, they're doing a little bit more primitively by going through projectile. And they come over, they take over the ship. And then in the end, you find out not only that, but they're going to grab them and they're going to turn them in, turn the people into some kind of, you know, Borg themselves. Only this is completely, rather than being a Borg, which of course is cyborg and very technology-based, this is completely organic, how they're absorbing the people. Right. Uh, and instead of a, 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 a very technological cube, huge cube, which totally dwarfs the normal starships, you've got this big meatball. <laughs> so uh, I, I saw a lot of, I mean, it even goes to the point where well, yes, uh, we blew it up, and, and although I didn't, we didn't mention this in the synopsis, because you can't mention everything, we're already too long. They mentioned about the idea that, yep, we blew up the only doorway they've got to come here. It's like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> no, you didn't. This is completely teed up for at least the possibility of a sequel. And, and these guys could be, I mean, if they wanted to do it, if they thought it was good enough, I mean, these could be the big bads that come back every once in a while uh, for the original Taz crew like the board keep coming back for next gen right right you know you know it's interesting now that you i i, I don't really get the board but now now that you say all that i'm do you remember the the creatures at the end of the was it the first season for that were they, and they made some reference to it being from far away on the other side of the galaxy that were very much like alien because they burst out of some guy in the chair in starfleet command um now, those are the ones where they were taking over people. Yes, right. They were. And, yeah, they kind of looked like these. Well, you know, personally, I think that was Roddenberry's first attempt at the Borg or something that would be a really, a really challenging threat, the likes of which the Federation never had to deal with before. And they I definitely know- left that like they were coming back, but they never did. Yeah, they never did. Right. Yeah, I thought that was more of the whole, you know, McCartney type. You know, communist type. You mean Paul scare. McCartney? Right. I think Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> McCarthy. McCarthy. The McCarthy uh, uh, communist scare that 
you know, right. these people were being blamed <laughs> for doing all this crazy stuff. But love is all you need. <laughs> yeah, well, you knew what I'm, you know what I'm saying. So quick, I yep. do. Little let die. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's his most famous song. It's pretty famous. Yeah, the movie probably helped. Yeah, I like the breathing apparatus Kirk is using. I mentioned it before, so I'll just throw it out there. Love tech, love tech. And, well, uh, and in regards to your love for tech, did you notice an interesting thing with the phaser on page sixty-five? Well, I did notice that they have you in this at one place or another. They've used almost every phaser possible. I mean, especially in in this time period where they're going against uh, whatever these things are, the critters. Right. They, I mean, they're using uh, assault phasers from Star Trek V. They're using uh, Star Trek One, you know, the motion picture, and mm-hmm. and and con kind of flat phasers. And I think they're even using the you know like the in like like the ones they used in in Four, which are, are a little bit more towards the original phaser. Anyway. Well, and they used the cage phasers at the beginning, which I thought was nice. The rifle that only shows up once, well, yeah. Well, yeah, they, they used the cage phasers, love those, and completely, I agree with Brian, love the phaser rifles. They are so schlocky, but <laughs> I love those. Those are great. The so maid, what are you talking about? Like, so on page 65, it shows Chekhov like, pulling a clip okay. out of the yeah. phaser. Yeah, that's the combat phaser, right. So that's actually... That's the way it does it. Yeah. That's an actual thing? Yeah, I got one. And it has <laughs> the clip and everything? It's got the clip. Huh. And it makes... And when you stick it in the bottom, it it goes... Lost <laughs> <laughs> well, and corrected then. It was classic. I've got one. <laughs> well, well, no, it's, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a prop replica, you know. I have, a, I have a room full of boxes of stuff, so I'm not being critical at all. I just thought it was a good moment. <laughs> uh, obviously, I don't mean a real one. Okay, fine. Are you sure? I wish. That'd be cool. Am I the only one that noticed um, they were going on and on about you know a Klingon, a human, and a Romulan working together? And I was like, isn't this after Star Trek V in the whole intergalactic planet of peace thing? Yeah, that was a big failure. Yeah. But I mean that Star Trek Five hadn't happened here yet. Well, right. Uh, yeah, Star Trek Five hadn't happened yet, and wasn't it? Oh, no, I, right. I, I, I got your Five right when they were on that that dust ball at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Nimbus Three. Right. Yep. Or right. Six. Three. What, yeah. Okay, that was right the first time. <laughs> you guys and your numbers. All right. <laughs> right. Which is the only time a Romulan was ever in the uh, original series movies, which I always thought was weird. Since they're a pretty major bad guy in the, the uh, show. There was a Romulan in Six. The, uh, Romulan oh, Ambassador. The, the Aid or whatever? Well, no, it's Romulan Ambassador. Ambassador, right. Yeah, and it, he didn't act very Romulan, though, did he? Nor did he have much of a role. He was just kind of in the background. I never understood why the, the president of the Federation had a Romulan ambassador as an aide or whatever. That seemed kind of contrary to good politics. Yeah, it did. Our number well, one and, villain. I'm going to ask you what I should be doing. Right, and they're right on the verge of the whole Klingon peace thing, which is right. you know enough. Yeah. Anyways. All right. So, what else you guys got? Oh, what about the uh, bumpy-headed Klingons versus smooth-headed Klingons? The core goes through a big tirade about that, which I think right. you kind of skimmed over a little bit uh, because he spends a lot of time on it yeah he does uh, i had not heard that explanation before 
it was news to me too. Yeah, especially since he turns up later on Deep Space Nine with a bumpy head. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he's still alive, although really old. Yeah, yeah. Not that was much. one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine was when they brought all three of them back together. Right to go after the albino. Yeah, yeah, it's a good episode. It didn't matter what they did, though. It was just that they were there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that they were still alive, though. That that doesn't ring true to me. Yeah. If you're a big warrior race, would you really live to be in your hundreds? Yeah, they they kind of talk about that at one point, you know. Yeah. I old. Anyways. All right. Um, let's see. So my my thought of uh, to sell having Kirk remember her. Do you think it paid off or not? No. How? Was there not another, is, not was there another the Katra thing, but I think they went a different route. Go on. <laughs> Her it's daughter's special. name is Takur, as in Takirk. So is is Takur Kirk's long lost love child with Tissel? Why? <laughs> Mixing it up. Yes, why? Go on. <laughs> All right, so Takur says that at the end that she was chided as being painfully human, and right. she mentions that she doesn't know who her father was, and she has the brown hair of Kirk. So I think that they're implying that when Tassel said, and remember, instead of giving him her Katra like I thought, that uh, she actually impregnated herself with their love baby. So she well, isn't she it. Impregnated herself? What, well, no, she, it might have worked that way. Well, I don't know. I think he might have been passed out. I don't. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't because because so. he was busted I think, up I think pretty you're bad. You're onto something, but I don't think it, they're trying to imply that she like you know had, took advantage of him while he was injured. I think they that happened before. I think he was injured, but he let her take advantage of him because he's Kirk. He is Kirk, <laughs> and that's what he would do. Played by the Shat. You're right about that. Right. So I think I really think that's what they're implying with the uh, Takur thing, that she's from the House of Kirk or however Romulans do their, their naming conventions. You know, I, I would not have guessed that that was I, – I didn't see that at all. But as you put connect the dots, I think you're right. When, when you, I thought you were just like saying they're talking about all this stuff with the Katra and remember and they're not going to do anything with it. I didn't really think you were going to pick up that thread and bring it somewhere, but you did. And I think you might be right. I think you might be right, too, but they're being pretty subtle about it, and I still don't get where exactly did the dirty deed happen. But I, I really think it's that panel where we were saying earlier that she looks a little naked, the one that you think she looks little, so beautiful in. She look, Yes, that's the word, beautiful. Uh, because she's yeah. in the middle of the act. The act. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Could right, be. with the one where we talked about and you said she doesn't look like she doesn't have any clothes on. That, right. that could be the moment. I think it is. And don't you normally have a conversation like that when you're making uh, sweet, sweet love? <laughs> Especially when you're incredibly injured. The scanners oh. have detected a bird of prey approaching. <laughs> Isn't that the kind of conversation you normally have naked, riding on somebody? Tell me more. Tell me sure, more. Sure, I'm glad we're done. <laughs> and, and then when you look at some of the final panels with them, uh, what is that, page 87? Where they've got... Uh, uh, with Takur and Kirk? Exactly. Okay. Uh, where, where she's at the uh, the ship's wheel, 
mm-hmm. the Star and Trek Five be- set. Exactly. And then beneath that, there's a shot of Kirk's face and her face, like right next to each other. And I think they actually drew in a little resemblance, I think, maybe a little bit. I well, I think so, definitely on 86, when it shows her looking, she has, she's in profile there at the bottom. I, oh, I think, right, and her hair is kind of a Kirkian kind of uh, yep. hairstyle uh, in the front. It's interesting because they, you know, this, this most of this, my, my criticism of this piece is that it was so on the nose. And this is pretty subtle, what they're trying to get at, and they never actually say it. And he clearly doesn't know. Um, it, but for the reader's sake, they're very subtle. Possibly because in um, the expanded universe, early on when they started doing the novels, right after the motion picture, they had novels where some of the characters had children. Spock had a son and Yesterday's Son, which, you know, there was a sequel to that book. But then at some point, Paramount said, "Mm, we're going to impose certain rules on all of the expanded universe stuff, like you can't give the characters children. So maybe they were restricted and they couldn't come out and say it, which ended up in this sort of subtle hint this reference which i think makes right. the story stronger yeah I, yeah it's just it's unfortunate that uh, you know it's just another depiction of kirk being you know an either absent father or uh, unaware father which right that's not know, that's not very comfortable right because i mean in in star trek 3 or star trek 2 it's it may have been clear to people that he knew that David was his kid, and he just always stayed away. Uh, but I mean, it's still kind of—it's new to the reader that that he has a kid. Absolutely. And I don't know. I always thought that he kind of got the raw deal there, and then David dies, and then now he gets another kid, and he doesn't even know it's his. <laughs> it's just... Well, and not only that, they keep on making such a big stinking deal about the Enterprise at multiple places. In the story, and and like comparing, ooh, I feel worse about the Enterprise than I do my own son. It's like I hated that. Well, yeah, I didn't like that. You either. know, that's really not good. I mean, it's an inanimate <laughs> object. I mean, it's the Enterprise and everything. We love it, but come on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he lived on the Enterprise and he wasn't allowed to know his son, but it's still your kid. It's still a human versus a ship. Yep. Right, and none of that. But why do you even have to make the comparison at all? You can love them both. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, it's that page right there where he says, you know, I lost somebody special and yeah. I wish I, I could say it was my son, but it was really just the yeah, ship. I agree. That, While that, he's that talking to what way. may or may not be his daughter, it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Dad. <laughs> I know where I fit into this. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but and this she... new ship, love it more than you. Sorry. <laughs> okay, but, but you think she knows? I don't no. know. I kind of think she does. Nah. I mean, why would why would she keep it secret from her? Well, it'd be handy if she did because I don't think uh, Tassel's going to tell her. <laughs> well, I think, and, and, and by the way, don't you think Tassel's dead? I mean, that's what I thought. I mean, if 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 the Enterprise barely got away from it and it was doing the high warp thing, well, I yeah, don't know. I didn't know if I didn't even understand why Tassel even left. I mean, why would she even try to go through that rip when she knows they're about to destroy it? Well, I, 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 the way I interpreted it is the ship, uh, the meatball, had to get further into the rift for the whole plan for the explosion of the revenge right. to have the desired effect. Right. Um, so you think she so was trying to lure it back in? Lure it, in, lure it, lure it into the uh, the gateway, the uh, 
the event horizon, whatever the heck they were calling it, the rift. Right. I think that's what she was doing. I mean, that that makes sense. Mm. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if she made it through. I don't know how long you're in. If it's like warp or the wormhole in Deep Space Nine, where yeah. you actually physically travel somewhere, even though you're traveling much farther than you really would. Well, one right. saving thing is they said Spock was was a Spock. I think Spock was explaining it. Instantaneous travel from one place to another. If right. she was able to truly uh, get the ship instantaneously traveling to that other galaxy, probably, from what Spock was saying, um, she could have got to the other side and hit warp and, you know, pedal to the metal. Maybe she survived. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I like to think she did. Maybe she's off. Uh, maybe it really just went to the uh, Delta Quadrant and she's over there with Gina. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe they'll bump into each other. Uh Kind of a time thing, kind of weird, but yeah. So I'm you glad... did see George there at the end, right? I mean, you were concerned that George wasn't in the picture. George, George and right. Gracie. No, I didn't see him. Where is he? Um, on the not the very last page, but the second to the last page, uh, where she's vertical and he's got the very cool James Bond slash Star Wars piece in his mouth. Right, and there you are, can see there there are two adults, two two adult two, two adults and a baby. I thought she's... that was one of the uh, the. Dolphins up close. I don't think so. Uh, that looks like a, a, like a black. Yeah, you're right. I, I can see it now. Unfortunately, her her word balloon covers it up. Well, that seems to be sort of a, a good metaphor for this whole the issue of this whole <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah, too much, too much talk. Too many words over the pictures. Yeah, too much talk, not enough action. But I did like how the story on the ship on the on the boat opened with the sunrise and it closed with the sunset. the sunset. I thought that was a nice well, touch. yeah, and, and, and you know, it's really nice how Kirk's out over there with uh, Jillian having the champagne and then the whales out there, which who's going to who's going to die because you can't make a whole whale society with like such a small gene pool. But whatever. And then and it's like, <laughs> "Okay, hey, we're having champagne. Great. Uh, sorry, so sorry to sell." Happy. Exactly. Sorry to sell. I guess I'm kind of kind of forget about you now. Yeah. I mean, Natalie, did, 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 didn't he just lose one of the loves of his life? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but they loved each other 25 years ago. He's over it. <laughs> okay, well, you know, whatever. even though I didn't really I, I didn't really it didn't hook me the whole Jillian Kirk framing story i i did like the fact that they at least made an attempt because i always thought at the end of star trek 4 when you know she says see around the galaxy and off she goes we never see her again i thought that was kind of lame right and then then he was kind of like oh but i kind of like to see more of you and she's like bye (laughs) you know turn the tables a little bit on him i i i kind of i kind of like i don't know i kind of like the tables being turned on him but it was a little bit cutesy cutesy now is this is this Gillian's only expanded universe appearance? Don't know. I don't can't think of any other. I'm thinking she's in a novel, um, but but a very very minor character. Um, I think they have like a convention for people who've been misplaced in time or something. It's kind <laughs> of a, a a little joke scene. Uh, but I, I I think this might be her only real scene. Um, other appearance. Hmm. Yeah, I, they, they, she just kind of disappears. Yeah. They, and, they don't get too concerned about the whole time stream being messed up because 
she's come forward in time. Nobody seems to be too worked up about that. Right. You can't just beam her back to her old body before. Right. I hate that. That what episode was that? Um, uh, I know which one you mean. Oh, that's the uh, Simon Earth. No. No. There was a, a comic that we reviewed that had that they two tied references. It in, they tied yeah. it into Assignment Earth in the comic book, but right. the actual episode is, um, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, where they but, beam up that captain that's in the little fighter jet. Yeah, and then absolutely. It's the cool one where you can see the Enterprise against the blue sky. Yeah. Anyways, we're going long, so we probably should just yeah, we probably think about should, that but later. Didn't they end Assignment Earth where they beamed that pilot back into his ship back into his plane no that wasn't assignment earth that was the other one that's the one we're trying to name oh that's okay you're right in the comic book they had while the events of the episode was happening gary seven was doing this on the enterprise so that's where you're tying the two together but you're right it was that idw one tomorrow was yesterday tomorrow was like that yeah sounds right. right that sounds right i knew they'd get the captain's name before i started talking about it and i don't I can't. It's not coming to me. Don't know. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Moving on. <laughs> Even though it was not perfect, I liked the book. It was great. And look, it's contributed to the longest Star Trek comic book review podcast ever, I think. Yay. Yay. So <laughs> I, I do what I hey, can. <laughs> you know, we'll beat the Russians. Yay. You know. Chekhov's not going to like that. No. Um, I, no I thought that all. it was. I thought the book obviously is worthy of. of of this of long discussion, I, I did find that by the end I was like, okay, enough, and, and that's not good, you know. No, probably like people it's, are it's, when they listen to this podcast. <laughs> exactly, it's like when you go to see a movie. You know that if you look at your watch, odds are it wasn't as good as it could have been. Right. But if I go through a whole movie, and I'm not even thinking about looking at my watch, then that's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, and this, I was, you know, going, you know, is this ever going to end? Anyway, sorry. Nope, I'm with you on that one. All right, so, uh, Brian, any closing thought, thoughts since uh, we might not hear from you for a while? Just that, you know, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing it. And, um, you know, I appreciate the fact that you, both of you, put so much time into this. I mean, the tw- twice that I've done it, it's taken a lot of time just to do with the recording. Now you guys have to take this episode and do all the engineering and the editing and, um, put it up on the web and all that. I I really do thank you um, on behalf of everybody um, who listens. All all the, all three of them. Crowd the crowd <laughs> that stands behind. <laughs> They're both enjoying it as much as I. <laughs> no, I'm trying to be. Man, are you paying him to say all this stuff? Uh, I am not. I but I no, fully I appreciate it. Sure. Thank good. you very much, Brian. Thank you very much. <laughs> so. All right. Well, um, hopefully someday we can get you back. Well, I would You're love to do it. You're not tired of us yet. No, I've, I, I, I have, I'll be listening. I'll be out there. Yeah, so and since we're going to be doing every comic book ever published for Star Trek, <laughs> there's going to be plenty of opportunity. Especially since they're coming out. You know, who knew there was going to be an ongoing series, you know, a couple of years after you started this process. Yeah. Right, yeah. So. We, we thought that there would just be the occasional miniseries, and then they're like, oh, no, every month. Uh, don't, don't. <laughs> Anyways, so far the ongoing is good, and and actually next episode, episode eighty three, uh, we'll be doing the March, April, and May issue of the ongoing. Right. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, and... there's one thing I have to ask you guys about before you leave. You know, 
I'm always deeply impressed. There was, I was a little disappointed when you were reviewing the last annual for TOS, and you guys, neither one of you could figure out who Ruth was. Uh, his his girlfriend from the Starfleet Academy days. Um, they never say when she's from Ruth, but she Ruthless. Ruth is his girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. In in the in the book, she's like his yeah his girlfriend before he goes to Starfleet Academy, sure. and then she back shows in, up there. Back right. in Iowa. But she's from the series. She was in the same episode as Finney. Uh, shore leave. She becomes like a an illusion, but he clearly knows who she is. You know, and he sits down with her, and it's, it's clearly a love of his life. Ruth, Ruth, Ruth. Oh, cool. The, okay. the Finney episode? Uh, sure, leave. Not Finney. Um, McFinnigan. Finnegan. 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 Yes. Right, okay. I need to watch that one again. Yeah. That's, and she's, you know, she comes out in some gaudy dress and, like, the, the I'm in love music on Star Trek. <laughs> and the close-up on her eyes starts, yeah, and everything's yeah. in soft focus. The Vaseline on the lens and everything—that's that's Ruth. <laughs> huh? Well, thank Get you. Get that off my chest. <laughs> good, thank you. Yeah, that's good. Huh? Yeah, because because Ruth seemed to be forced. You know, it's like, what the hell do we see here? Her here at the end, right? I mean, right. okay, so that makes more sense. Tying it into a, a known character by some people, anyway. Yeah, in the TV well, they, series, and they did a good cool. job. I thought it, of that in that. I really enjoyed that particular book. Yeah, because uh, we enjoyed it, even though we didn't catch who she was. And then, if you did catch who she was, you would have enjoyed it even more. Uh, that that see, that's the kind of references to the old show that I think works. Right. Uh, this one, where you're just naming off people, I think it seems forced. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Overdone. Well, thanks, Brian. That's uh. We need you on as our fact checker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I do. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll always let you know. <laughs> and we appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going long, so I guess we should wrap it up. So, uh, like I said, next week, uh, come back and uh, we'll go over some IDW. Looking forward to it, especially since we've got maybe some new stories. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, Instead the just... uh, the the. Vulcan's Revenge storyline. Exactly. It's not a retread of an episode. Exactly. Now, they've done a good job with the retreads in general, but, you know, let's see some new stuff. There you go. All right. Well, until then, we'll be talking to you later. And for next Donovan time. and Ken and Brian, see you next time. Later, everybody. Star Trek Comic Book Review. <laughs> <laughs> with Donovan, Ken, and Brian. I told you I'm not doing the Scooby-Doo impression anymore. Go (laughs) Later, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the